Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being. As we approach the end of lockdown two, we're still facing a winter of restrictions, and I can say I'm certainly not looking forward to the cold months stuck inside. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's work on well-being, which is important for everybody this winter. So we're going to be talking to someone today who knows all about being stuck inside for months on end in the most wintry of conditions. So I went and had a conversation with Anne Hicks, who is the former director of the medical unit for the British Antarctic Survey. And Abby, it was a shame that you couldn't join us. I know, she sounds like such an interesting guest. I'd really like to hear about how they cope working in such extreme conditions. Yeah, Anne and I definitely talked about that. Um, Plus the importance of of recognising when people aren't coping and how you might do that. Um, And the absolutely crucial role of uh, structures uh, and social norms and how we have to create those for ourselves. So now let's listen to my interview with Anne Hicks. Yes, my name's Anne Hicks. Uh, I'm first and foremost an emergency medicine uh, consultant. I work in uh, University Hospitals Plymouth. I'm also uh, a doctor for the British Antarctic Survey Medical Unit. Uh, I was medical director up until last year um, and I've been doing that for something like 16 years um, and train and support the doctors who go south. We screen everybody who goes south and supports all elements of uh, deployment to Antarctica and the Arctic. And that's something that we want. I wanted to talk to you about in terms of um, when you're preparing clinicians and and everyone to go and spend this time in the Antarctic and the Arctic. You know, obviously, as a clinician in that situation, you're not only helping to look after everyone else um, who's on the base, but you're also having to maintain your own coping strategies and your own mental and and sort of physical well being. Uh, and so, you know, what are the sort of lessons that that you've learned from working with staff going into that environment? So interestingly, it's rarely the stuff that you would expect that is the problem. So um, when you first get to Antarctica, for example, you're overwhelmed by the risk. You're a long way away. It's covered in ice. Um, The human body's not designed to work there. Um, The human being looks frankly ridiculous in Antarctica. And when you get there, that's overwhelming and omnipresent. And then 24, 48 hours later, you've started normalizing to the most ridiculous things. And so it's often not the necessarily the predictable things, but there's a lot of, um, you're much more affected by things that happen with your family and friends at home when you can't do anything. So there is something about the psyche of a doctor and quite often the role of the doctor in the family is often to, you know, explain what's going on, try and sort stuff out. Uh, we're driven to fix stuff. Hearing about stuff when you're 8,000 miles away and not being able to do anything about it is really difficult. And I know that the NASA astronauts suffer with the same um, type of thing. The knowledge of what's going on at home because communication is so much better. So in, in the old days, when you went to Antarctica, you would sail down to Antarctica, which would take a couple of months. You would get there, do one or two winters and come back. And your only communication to home would be a telegram every now and again, which was largely 
um, dear Johnny, uh, the children are doing very well. Um, lots of love. We think we're so proud of you. And the person in Antarctica would write back and go, it is extraordinary. What an adventure. Um, the trouble with modern communication now is that you are really aware of what's going on at home. And I fell into this. I, I've given lectures on this in the past. I fell into exactly the same trip and or trap and I went down there I took a picture of an iceberg in the morning sent it back to my family I took a same picture a different picture of the same iceberg a bit later uh, and instead of being excited I was told that the car had broken there was a child ill and the washing machine wasn't working and of course I, I felt somewhat futile distant and helpless um, which if I hadn't had those communications it wouldn't do that and I think if you look at working in a pandemic and rising, you know, there is no question that you really want to put your shoulder to the beam, um, that you want to be there and you want to help, however scary that may be. But you've also got the anxiety suddenly about your work um, with your children going, so mummy, how dangerous is it? Um, have you seen anyone from COVID today? Have you, you know, you, you are suddenly you're, you're no, no longer going off to a black box of work. You're going off to something that your family are reading about. And I've spoken to a lot of friends, families, and they actually carried a lot of anxiety. And I think part of the pandemic thing was not, it's not just about you. It is suddenly something that is affecting everybody you know. Um, so when we're preparing people for Antarctica, we talk much more about the the human, um, the human factors, the human elements than we do necessarily about the medicine. Um, there is a lot of uh, talk about checking in with people, having regular conversations, uh, making sure you know what the temperature of the base is, the temperature of the, of the doctors that are there, so that if something goes wrong, you can tell from their voice really before they say anything. Um, so I think there's... Uh, once you've lost control, one of the things which we noticed with Antarctica is if, if people have their travel plans changed, that can be really um, upsetting and confusing. And um, of course, it's inevitable. So you need to try and manage those expectations. And I know that's one thing about managing the hospitals at this time is you have to have a reactive, flexible plan because your IT you need one week might be completely different to the next. But that uncertainty about your, your rotors, most people had shadow shifts and if it was going to be busy, they were going to be doing and if they weren't. And suddenly all the normal things like writing your planner for the week and telling your children or family or colleagues, oh, I'm going to be here or there. It's like, well, I might be doing this or I might be doing a set of nights. And I think it just creates that sense. Um, and I actually think on reflection, I think there was another angle which... Um, we were set up as kind of NHS heroes, um, implying that we had capes and had our underwear on the outside or something. I think lots of our shifts were uh, not particularly exciting and pretty mundane. <laughs> and um, sometimes you weren't doing very much. And I think uh, that's quite difficult when you also see other people working in other professions who were probably more exposed to unknown risk um, or financial hardship. So I think it was quite, it was very complicated from a uh, getting a good night's sleep, powering off and having time down. So 
And I think it's the same as when they go to Antarctica. There's often that kind of romanticised, heroic idea of going to Antarctica. Whereas actually a lot of people are doing very mundane jobs there. There is still cooking, cleaning, bins to be done, washing, you know, lots of stuff, which is not very exciting at all. <laughs> um, so I think, I think it's uh, managing the expectations of what people think you're doing, um, mm. as well as the, the limitations and the management of what you're actually doing. Mm. And do you think you have to manage your own expectations as well, not just not just other people's expectations. I think, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the narrative and to feel like, you know, the way you're contributing to the great fight of the pandemic is by, you know, doing your shift in ICU or whatever, but recognising, I suppose I'm thinking more of our primary care colleagues here, for example, that actually, you know, all the other things that you do that might seem mundane are kind of equally vital. Absolutely. There are so many uh, little bits of, the overall war effort um you know primary care did work really hard in the first pandemic so um the stats from our local primary care showed that they were doing lots and lots of non face-to-face um and face-to-face and so actually the total amount of work was much higher than it's ever been and yet they're not in they're not in the picture frame of uh you know stand, stood there in PPE surrounded by a ventilator so it is somehow less worthy so I think there's a lot of um uh reverse psychology almost and I think there was at times have been a lot of talk about making sure that we need to look after people's well-being which I'm a huge supporter of um and I think I I posted something on Twitter showing you know nice bath and candles and a glass of gin and that you know not all well-being has to be paddle boarding i think making sure that there's a range of well-being for everybody at different times and and different things but i think that yes there's definitely that expectation of is this bit as worthy as others and you know for the doctor going to antarctica yes they're a qualified doctor but we had one doctor who didn't do any medical consultations for six months um and what's really interesting there is what are you? So one of our doctors came back uh, from working on an island um, in South Georgia. He'd seen very little medicine and he had never truly appreciated before that he was defined by being an anaesthetist. And when he came back, he went and did a couple of lists for free to get his hands back in and to um, just really reacquaint himself. And he came to see me and he said, it's all right, Anne, I'm me again. And I think for a lot of people where they weren't doing elements of their job, that that is quite difficult. And I think as a breed, we are quite defined by the hats that we wear at work and the bits that Mm. give us pleasure. And some of those got turned off. Mm. Absolutely. And we've definitely heard that from from other people. Like, you know, one of the things that some staff are really dreading about the next wave is having to for example, redeploy to another clinical area, you know, and, and turn off the bit of them that's an ophthalmologist or, you know, a, a surgeon and, and have to redeploy elsewhere. And I think that sense of self is, is a really interesting aspect of that. And I think also it's that you adapt to being, um, the more senior you are, the in some ways the narrower your set of skills are. And so that feeling of being a referred to expert is what you get used to. 
and suddenly being at sea and not knowing where anything is and what the, what the systems are, that makes you feel very uncertain and unsure. And that can be difficult if you've been in an area that you're reasonably com- confident in. So, yeah. Yeah. And no one was confident in managing COVID. You know, we um, didn't know how to treat it effectively. We didn't know, you know, what, what the best strategies were for supporting patients. Um, so at least hopefully going into the I'm not sure if it's COVID-2 or 3 or whatever we're calling this current wave. Um, is, uh, is, yeah, at least we the have box more knowledge. Yeah. And, yes, exactly, the trilogy. But at least we have more knowledge and experience of, of the clinical management of it than, than we have before. I'd like to move now to talk a bit about prevention. As a medical director in charge of these people stuck in the Antarctic... Did you have anything you specifically watched out for with them when you were talking to them from Plymouth? So it's a it's a really uh, interesting and NASA. Uh, so Antarctica is used as an analog space environment. So a lot of research that informs future manned flight to Mars and Moon and all that sort of stuff is done in Antarctica. So there's um, there's various elements to it. One is um, uh, just studying the tones of voice. So uh, British Antarctic Survey individuals have been involved in reading set things over a period of time over the winter, and you can see the tone of their voice. Um, you can then get them to describe stuff. So you, you'd ask them to describe the previous 24 hours. And so when they're feeling good, they'll be going, oh, you know, we've done this and outside, it was all this and it was amazing and we did that. And, oh, they... and then you'll get, uh, yesterday I had my meals, uh, I slept and I got up today. And they lose all use of, uh, of adjectives of, uh, you know, over the top hyperbole and all this sort of thing. So there's, um, and NASA actually doing research on, uh, they will watch the tones of how you say stuff. So there's a big performance pressure, very akin to being in medicine. So if someone senior to you says, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Your usual response is to go, yes, it's absolutely fine. Uh, There are no problems here. Um, Actually, you might be saying that, but the tones of your voice might let the person listen, knowing that they're far from okay, actually, and that it's not all right. So there's, there's quite a lot of science into watching the tonality of voice the words that people use but from our point of view we're just we're very aware that we get the intelligence by one person which is the doctor but we need to make sure that the doctor's okay we know a lot more about their socio um, environment and what's affecting them from home um, but also what the um, uh, emotional vibe is on base and that if something is going wrong, uh, we'd be able to pick up on that. And if there's a catastrophe, that we know who's who's in what order. So that kind of temperature check on the herd is really important, as well as on the individual. And I think that's really important to do. With, to do, it's the same as um, looking after crews in the pandemic. Really, is making sure you know simple things. You know, has that person gone to work in the COVID area the last couple of days, and actually they've had enough? Um, do they? Is someone a bit you know? worked out of being in minors or over in majors or actually are they just a bit fried that kind of constant temperature check is what we probably innately do as leaders of emergency medicine and in and across the medical specialties but I think being acutely aware of that and being acutely aware that all sorts of things might have happened at home to put people off their stride 
So I think that's a, a really important area. Um, you, you picked up this idea of there needing to be a range of wellbeing options and it. it's not just the kind of paddle boarding or, you know, whatever it is, the kind of long distance cycling. Um, and we know that people are reflecting this kind of anxiety about going into the winter that you, you sort of also mentioned earlier, the, the dark days and, you know, when your options are so limited for what you can do to sort of recharge and recover and when you feel like you haven't had this recovery time. Yeah, so lots of um, do you have sort of any thoughts and reflections about um, what... There's, Those well-being there's some options real might elements like which are immediately translatable to this. So um, I think we're very used to as doctors being team players and uh, going into coffee rooms, catching up at the end of a shift and going, oh, you know, today that was difficult and that sort of thing. And one of the things that doctors find in Antarctica is that that clinical isolation of not having anyone to talk to, because obviously as soon as you talk to anybody else, you're breaching confidentiality because you have another doctor to talk to. Um, and I think that decompression from work is really hard. So, um, yes, if you've done a clinical shift, you're coming home. But certainly when you're working home, if your commute takes you one second to turn your computer off, and then you're in your house. Um, you don't have that drive to or that. I used to live in work in London. Uh, my tube ride used to sort of cleanse not my lungs but my brain as you were dumping various things you've been thinking about at work or needed to think over so that when you walk through your door to your family you've already left all that behind so I think the biggest things to try and maintain are some sense of structure I think um, actually timetabling in stuff um, for you I think it's important there is at times a real performance pressure on what the well-being activity should be um, for people. And I think um, there can be times where the pressure for physical-based well-being um, kind of underestimates that sometimes a tub of ice cream and a good movie might be really what you need. If you then put a bit of shame on that, that's really difficult to be allowed to recharge and not be honest about sharing it. Um, I think the whole um, I think it's a really positive thing about it. it's okay to not be okay. Um, you don't have to pretend or exude that you're finding it all fine. Um, and actually, I know when I sat in the COVID area a couple of times going, you know, it's quite difficult learning about something really, you know, we had a really difficult patient in and afterwards, and one of the juniors went, oh, it's really good to hear you talking about how difficult that was and it's like well of course it's difficult you know we don't have there isn't a book written down about this yet and, and weirdly I don't think we've ever had our clinical practice so influenced by Twitter and Facebook ever before with really good people coming and going oh last night I read on Twitter this it's like what happened to your evidence-based review and I know it's difficult because you don't have the evidence but I think um, in that uh, well-being um, elements the permission that you know a duvet day or binge watching a box set is as valid as doing exercise as doing a zoom call with people um, and all that sort of stuff and I think trying to work out what you need to uh, restore yourself so one of the doctors who was down south was was really gregarious and you would have had him down that all he ever needed to do was, um, you know, 
party, party, party. But actually, um, he needed somewhere quiet to paint. And that was really important. And when he had that place, which was almost exclusively for him to paint, he was able to restore so that people still got the, the, the bit that they needed out of him. And I think being honest about what it is that you need to restore, making sure that that feels valid and sharing it potentially with other people so that they go, oh, that's a good idea. You know, reading a book, writing poetry, doing your reflections, um, decorating a bathroom, whatever it is, we have to make sure that well-being isn't prescriptive um, and that it doesn't have to fit in a mould and that we make all of those things valid. Um, and certainly, um, you know, taking up new skills or trying something new can be really good because it uses different areas of your brain. But also you might feel intimidated and overwhelmed. I've got nothing else. You know, I don't want to have to work out how to do something new. And so I think um, honest, supportive discussions and whilst we provide quite a lot of formal help there's quite a lot of evidence from deploying personnel that just talking to someone else who you feel empathizes with what you're saying is probably more useful than any of the other routes um and talking through um when when they used to come back from antarctica they used to all come on the same ship and so they'd all kind of debriefed and and done their stuff so that when they got back to the UK they were more able to be open-minded what happens now is we fly people back and quite often they can end up surrounded by trees and cars before their brain has actually left the ice yet so I think there's um there's a lot in there about finding validity and what's going to recharge you but also acknowledge that um that you need a bit of space and timetabling in some structure and space into your day can be really helpful, even if that timetable includes sit on sofa staring at wall for a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. It's not something we've really discussed before, but I really recognize that description of the kind of judgment about what is a kind of valid well-being activity um which isn't necessarily you know <laughs> flopping on the sofa watching 90s programs that are very brain dead because you yeah. watched them before you know um, and yet friends have said you know one of the best things we did during lockdown was re-watch all of friends you know um and so i think yeah i think that's a really helpful perspective i was interested in the, the thing you said around um having a space to paint and that idea of um kind of adapting your yeah, so environment do, to give you um, the way that what you think need about you know basically got these sort of thoughts about is all that. about having a different feel and mood and actually if you want to read about psychology and adversity there is a really good book called hell with a capital h which was written about the team in antarctica that were waiting for scott so they actually overwintered with no support in an upturned uh, boat and ice caves and their doctor happened to be interested in psychology and nutrition so he's largely accredited with um, helping those guys survive and what it seems extraordinary to us is when they were in an upturn ice dugout with um, fur hanging down they kept the officers and the ranks separate 
And to some of us, we're like, oh, that's ridiculous, you know, we're all one people. But it was the only sense of order that they understood. And they did things like they still had a structure, even when they hardly had any food, they still did mealtimes in a mealtime way. They didn't sort of snack. Um, they, they kept, I think they ended up with tobacco and chocolate. They rationed those really early on. So they would have, you know, quite a lot of performance over smoking, a really small amount of tobacco because that felt normal. And I think what a lot of people have found with homeworking or this kind of fractured team working is that you actually need to create space, which is different, however small. And so, um, I've just, uh, my own daughter is just, uh, is at university um, and had to self-isolate. And one of the things that I encouraged her to do was to make sure that she didn't stay on her bed all day, that she went to her desk to do this, that she went, um, you know, she, she walked around her tiny little student flat, but that she used different bits of the flat. And when she was just watching videos to relax, she goes onto her bed. And when she's doing uh, lectures remotely she sits at her desk those little bit of structures really help you make you feel like you've got control in something that doesn't feel like control so I think it's really important that um, when you're doing lockdown that you try and promote those zones of different different things so for example one of the things that I do is we've got a lovely bathroom I have a really nice bath which physically lets me commute in some ways. I kind of relax, chill out, zone out. And then when I come down, I feel like I'm the home me. Um, when I don't do that, I feel that it's not quite as crystal clear. So I think there's lots of little tricks um, that you can do. And I know, for example, on the ship, um, the ship can be a very challenging environment to spend a long time at sea. And some of the science negates you just really being still with not a lot happening. <laughs> not not all the wildlife and icebergs and all that sort of excitement um and so they are very rigid about meal times um they do social events they make very formal punctuations to the day to stop you kind of free running and i think there aren't very many humans who thrive on no plan at all and in the Antarctic winter, presumably there are going to be people who aren't flourishing on no light at all. It would be remiss of us not to talk about that. Is a lack of daylight a big issue? And is there good evidence about that? Oh, it is. It's, it's really interesting um, in that. Um, so one of our bases uh, is dark for 90 days. So the sun takes its time to go down and you know it won't be back for 90 days. So, and it's also a bit chilly then as well, because it's the Antarctic winter. So you can go out a little bit, but in a very limited way. Um, so that mess, the evidence side of it is that messes with all sorts of your bits of hormone or hormone axis. So your sleep is poor, your, your waking can be poor, your uh, you can get a huge apathy. Some people, whatever they do, just can't get a grip of their rhythms without light helping them. Um, and then there's been lots of research about different sorts of light. So the, the modern British Antarctic Survey base um, feeds off that research and looks at the sort of light it has, looks at um, 
how you use light to try and dupe um, your body into behaving. Um, and also you have all of the effects of on your cortisol axis um, and your thyroid function. So being in dark alone has quite a significant effect on the human body. So um, some people, and there's a normal range in your adaptation to it. Um, what's really interesting is it's quite difficult to predict who will be affected and who won't be. Um, uh, interestingly, doctors have, you know, the best imposter syndrome in the world. Um, they adore having really high expectations. And we've had several of our doctors who know all about the research and have been involved in doing research and then still get frustrated that they've fallen foul of their physiology, <laughs> which has then had a worse effect on them because they thought that they should be able to cope because they're the doctor. So, so the, the lack of... Um, having light is more than just on the uh, you know that makes me feel better it's actually on all sorts of basic physiology which can be really difficult to um to, uh, overcome and so uh whilst there are um frequencies of light that can overcome it better and that's why there's there's a whole business about lamps to um deal with sad syndrome and all that that kind of side of things there is also a psychological impact of trying to make sure that you keep a rigor as to what time of day it is and doing various ceremonies, be it meals or activities or something to acknowledge what it's doing. And one of the biggest areas that we have to help people with is uh, sleep hygiene um, to try and help them uh, get their sleep working well with blackout blinds because obviously in the summer the inverse is true you've got light all day and you don't have any dark and some people that's that's just as detrimental to what's going on as the full dark so the bottom line is uh, humans aren't meant to live in extreme environments um, and I suppose the extreme environment is for everybody who goes to work is you, you drive in in the dark in winter and you drive home in the dark you don't get the views you don't get the you know amazing restorative skies that make you think of poetry and amazing pictures um you actually just have dark with or without rain um and that's that can be difficult to find that poetic restoration that we get from the other stuff Well, Kat, I thought that was really interesting. I thought her points around making sure that you have structure in your day to cope with unusual situations was really important and really resonated with things we've heard before on this podcast, actually, from Cormac and the work that they do in the military to help people adjust to new situations. Absolutely. And I think maybe for some listeners who work in hospital environments or things like that, you know, they haven't really lost that kind of sense of structure and, and shift work and, and kind of patterns. Um, but I know for colleagues working in primary care, um, their days have become a lot less structured um, and a lot more amorphous. And I know from speaking to them that that's been incredibly challenging. I just thought um, her point about 
Um, the transition was really interesting. I think, you know, this idea that they used to all travel by boat together and there was a really important time to kind of um, move from one mindset to another and kind of get back to home life. Um, and now that kind of sense of dislocation can be really hard to deal with if, you know, you're just moving rapidly now by flying. Um, and again, that also speaks to some of the things that Cormac has talked to us about on other podcasts about, you know, just taking that time to, to pause and let go of work stuff um, before you go into your home environment um, and how important that is for you psychologically. Mm, I'm sure that will resonate with any trainees listening who were perhaps moved out of their regular training pathway into a intensive care environment during the pandemic and then moved out again with probably no kind of adjustment period. So I'm sure that'll be interesting for them to hear. Absolutely. And I think like you said, kind of knowing what the structures are in your kind of in that culture Uh, so you know you kind of get to know what the kind of structures and rituals are like in in your um again my experience is gp so you know that oh at coffee uh, everyone tries to break for coffee and, and to meet and discuss cases but you know in another environment that might not be um the way and actually it's much more important to meet at lunchtime or to connect before surgery starts and I think that can be very dislocating if you don't know what those kind of cultures and rituals are um I also really like what she said about um tone of voice I think some fascinating research around kind of understanding how stressed people are just by just by the tone of voice they use and I think um a lot of us do that quite instinctually but I'm certainly going to be paying more attention to to the tone people use when they talk about how they're feeling and how they're doing I'll bear that in mind Kat when we do our next podcast (laughs) well that's all we have time for thanks very much to our guest Dr Anne Hicks for coming on the podcast and please check us out on social media we're at bmj underscore latest on twitter or you can join the bmj wellbeing group on facebook and we would always like to hear your ideas for what you would like us to cover in future episodes until next time it's goodbye from us Bye. bye